I'm sure most of you are probably aware that the last couple of weeks has been hunting season. And uh, last year in hunting season, I spent almost every single morning and almost every single evening out on the hunt looking for that perfect buck. And when I finally saw it, I had one shot at it, and I missed. And so this year, I was thinking, all right, you can't go, you can't go two years in a row without getting, getting a deer. So I, was, I put in that little extra time to really prepare. You know, I, I learned all about scent control and minimizing your, your odor and, and doing all of the right things to be in the strategic position at the right time and knowing wind direction and all these sorts of things. You know, really making sure that I had the best gear at, at my disposal and just put in that little extra time. And so finally we're at our, our friend's uh, uh, piece of land right on a valley out near, near Manitou. We had our blind set up. Um, it was, the, of course, the last evening of the last, the last hunt out there. And it's 5 o'clock. And finally, out from the tree line steps a doe. Oh, a doe. So you watch it through the scope. Oh, off it goes. And 10 minutes go by. It's starting to get, you know, the sun's going down. You're thinking, that's eh, probably not going to happen. But all of a sudden, I just had this feeling like I could just envision a buck stepping up from the tree line right where that doe had stepped out from. And I turn over uh, to Jeremy, who was sitting in the blind with me, and I just whisper to him, I could just imagine a buck stepping out from the tree line right there right now. And I turn around, and I kid you not, less than 10 seconds later, out steps a buck from the tree line. And I get the gun up, and I first I think it's a doe, and I look, and no, there's antlers, and take the shot... Perfect, dropped him right in place. Everything came together. And it was just one of those moments where it was just like life. So often we have to put in the time. We have to have those moments of failure where you miss the shot. But you don't give up. You put in the extra time. You work again and you put yourself in a position where everything just comes together and you enjoy that, that moment where everything just happens the way you envisioned it. And I just felt like, I, I don't know whether God prompted that buck to step out right then or not. <laughs> I don't know if he would do that to a buck or not. But it felt like it was one of those moments where God was just, it was a blessing to be able to be in that moment and have everything come together. And so often in life, we, we long for those moments where everything comes together. But... So often it seems like we're living in the other part. We're living in the failure where we miss the shot, where everything seems to be going wrong, and you're trying, but it's not working. And so we have, to, we have to not lose hope. And as we look at the world today, we have to not lose hope because it, we, we have this idea of what it looks like if everything were to come together. But when we look at the world today, it looks like everything's falling apart. It's not coming together. And so we have to not lose hope. We have to keep going, and we have to keep trusting God. So that's what I want to focus our attention on this morning. Uh, Would you bow with me, and let's pray together as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the God of all creation, that everything that exists is because you spoke it into being. And so, Lord, as we acknowledge that you are the original cause, you are the one who has set everything into motion, We come to you this morning, Lord, and we want to reaffirm and acknowledge that you are also the one who is still in control of all things. And that even as we look at a world that seems to be coming apart at the seams, as it seems as though everything is falling apart rather than coming together, 
Lord, in your word, you have shown us this beautiful picture of what happens when it all works and it all comes together. It's a beautiful picture, Lord, of a world at peace, of people of all nations, all tongues and tribes living together in harmony, where brother no longer rises up against brother, where there's no longer war or violence or death or separation, where there's no more destroyed relationships, where there's just no more pain. Lord, that is the the beautiful image you have given us of when your kingdom is fully established, when everything comes together just the way you intend for it to happen. And so, Lord, as we are reminded again of your perfect vision for this world, we pray that this morning we would not lose hope. We pray that you would encourage us through your word. And Lord, you know the word that you have laid on my heart, and you know and you knew in advance each person who would be here this morning. So I just pray, Lord, that whatever is from you, that it would be received, Lord, that you would speak to each heart exactly what they need to hear this morning. Lord, whatever's from me, just let it blow away. And may it only be your word that remains. So speak through me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives directly sits across from the city of Old Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley. He's sitting on the top of the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem. And his disciples come to him privately. And they ask him, tell us, teacher, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Now, does this sound like an ancient prophecy or like last week's news headlines? Which category does that fall into? The words of Christ spoken 2,000 years ago or the events that have transpired in the last two weeks? Our main text for today is taken from Psalm chapter 2, and it begins with this question, the main question I want to pose for you this morning. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage and people plot a vain thing? The rage and hatred that fueled misguided and evil plots against King David when he wrote these words nearly over 3,000 years ago. The same hatred, the same evil plots and schemes that were being carried out by wicked people against King David in that time and in ancient Israel, those same things are happening in a wide variety of ways today. If you pay any attention to the news, these are some of the things that will have caught your attention. The Iranian regime still seeks to wipe modern-day Israel off the map and make no bones about this being their goal. A four-year-old civil war continues to rage in Syria. The seemingly never-ending battle against ISIS goes on. Terrorist attacks seem to be increasing once again. An airliner is blowing up. ISIS claims responsibility. There are multiple suicide bombings. People are gunned down or blowing up in places like Beirut, Paris, and Mali. 
with millions of civilians caught up in the middle of all of this. What is the result? Everywhere we look, people are alarmed, afraid, and with good reason. In the East, those caught in the middle of this violence flee to the West looking for refuge. And in the West, we fear the violence spreading into our own lands. Wars and rumors of wars, Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed. In fact, it's only ramping up, isn't it? This is only increasing. The scale and scope of it seems to be ever-widening. But when we look back at the words of Jesus, right in the middle of describing to his disciples just how terrifying the final act of history is going to be, he says this in verse 6, But see to it that you are not alarmed. He describes how bad things are going to be, and then he says to his disciples, See to it that you are not alarmed. How is that possible? Is it possible to watch the terrorist attacks unfold in Paris almost in real time and not be alarmed? Is it possible to hear of ISIS ongoing atrocities and not be alarmed? Is it possible to face the threat of similar things happening in our own lands and not be alarmed? Is this possible? Jesus said to his disciples that it was possible, but it begs the question, how? How is this possible? Now, when I was attending Bethany Bible College, one of the things that would happen on a periodic basis would be the fire drill. Now, the fire drill always came with its own set of different uh, funny things that would usually happen, um, especially in the wintertime where, where guys would always pretend for whatever reason that they had just left the shower so they would have their shirt off running through the snow with a towel draped over their shoulders because they thought it was funny. <laughs> so watching guys run through snow drifts like that was a pretty funny thing. If any of you have ever done a, a polar, bear, uh, polar bear roll, this would fall into the same category. Now, of course, the fire drills sort of became routine, and so when the alarm went off, no one actually thought that there'd be a real fire. We just assumed it was a fire drill. And so one night, it's middle of the night, I'm fast asleep, the fire alarm just so happened to be located directly on the wall outside of our dorm room. So the fire alarm all of a sudden goes off middle of the night, it's, it's ear-splitting noise, and I'm just woken up from a deep sleep, I'm groggy, my, my roommate sits up, and I look over at my roommate, and he says, I'll go check it out. So I proceed to grab my pillow, cover my head, and try to go back to sleep, right? Smartest thing to do. And so I'm laying there with the pillow over my head, but the alarm's just not going off. So finally, I'm like, oh, I can't sleep like this. And so I get up, and groggily, I walk into the hallway, and there I find my roommate with his pillow and the pillow's up against the fire alarm, and he's trying, to, he's trying to muzzle the noise of the alarm going off, and he's holding it there, but it just won't shut off. And meanwhile, I start to notice that, oh, there's a smell, and the, fall, the hallway's actually filling up with smoke. <laughs> Turns out that a couple of guys thought it would be a great idea to barbecue steaks in the dorm, and uh, that's where the smoke ended up coming down the hallway. But it begs the question, as I look back on this, that why wasn't I alarmed? Why wasn't I more afraid when this alarm went off? Because whether it was smart to do so or not, I trusted my roommate. 
I trusted that if something was serious, he would have let me know. And so I tried to continue to rest. Now, it's far from a perfect example, but in a similar way, there are alarm bells ringing around our world. And we can allow them to keep us up at night. Or we can rest in the knowledge that God still has everything under control. You see, Psalm chapter 2 begins with the fear-filled question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? But it closes in the final line with a confident declaration. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Trust is the key. We trust that God is sovereign. That means that he oversees and has ultimate control over all things, even when it doesn't seem that way. Trust is the only possible way that we can see to it that we are not alarmed. It is only by putting full trust in God's goodness and sovereignty over the world and our own lives that we can find this safe refuge. Now, of course, I realize that it's incredibly easy for me to stand up here today and to tell you, just trust God. Just have more faith and you won't be alarmed. All your worries will go away. It's easy for me to say that. But what does that look like? How can we learn to trust God more fully? Now, the first step, of course, is paramount. Before you can trust him with anything else, you have to trust him with your own soul. Your soul, that part of you that is eternal. Your soul that God has created you with that will live on beyond your own death. You have to trust him with that before you can trust him with anything else. And that step, of course, is the first step to trusting him with anything else. In order to do that, you have to go to him and recognize that you're a sinner. Have your sins forgiven by confessing them to God, saying, Lord, forgive me. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. And when you do that, God's Spirit comes to live inside of you, to transform you, empower you, and give you the assurance that your eternal soul will live with him in heaven when you die. So without doing that first, everything else in the sermon this morning is not going to help you very much. If you can't trust God with your eternal soul, trusting him with anything else pales in comparison. So this is where... We have to begin. We trust him with our souls. Once we've done that and we have God's Holy Spirit living in us, empowering us and changing our lives, we then need to learn how to see the world the way God sees the world. This means that we interpret the events of the world not through a man-made perspective, but from a biblical perspective. To do that, we must be filled and guided by the Holy Spirit as we study and immerse ourselves in God's word. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 in the NLT says this, Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. You see, it is our mind's patterns of thinking. It is the way we process information that needs to be fundamentally changed if we are going to see things the way God sees them. You see, in our flesh, we can only interpret the events that happen around us in a certain way. We're never going to see things the way God does if we're interpreting them only through a human way of thinking. 
And so it is here in this mysterious yet very real process of immersing ourselves in God's word, praying in the spirit, that this transformation of our thinking and of our very minds occurs. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says this, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, once our minds have been transformed, then we can see things God's way. Then we can know what his will is, not only for our lives, but for the world. And so it is in this transformation that we begin to see things God's way. The only way we can stop thinking and seeing things the way the world does is to allow this transformation to take place. And this requires daily renewal or feeding of our minds, if you will. So let me ask you, what do you feed your minds every day? If you had to say, what do you feed your bodies every day? Most of you would probably say things along the lines of, well, I start with toast and cereal in the morning or a bowl of porridge or something like that. But let's flip it away from physical feeding. What do you feed your minds every day? Have you ever thought about that? Well, chances are you all have some version of feeding your minds that you do in the morning. Chances are some of you get up and turn on the the morning news. Or you'll get out a devotional. Or you'll, you'll do something that stimulates, that feeds your mind. And you'll do that throughout the course of the day. Now, there are many options with what we can feed our minds with, just as there are many options with what we can feed our bodies. There's the food of the news media, whether CBC, CTV, or CNN, take your pick, Fox News, McLean's Magazine, the Clarny Guide. There are so many sources of media information. These are sources of food for our minds. There's the food of politics. Take your pick, whether Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative or NDP or the Green Party or the Rhinoceros Party. Take your pick. They're they're all out there. These are another source of food for our minds, political thinking. Then there's the food of popular opinion. This is probably one of the areas we feed ourselves with the most. Whether it's Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil, the stuff we just read through on Facebook the stuff we hear and talk about in the coffee shop. There is the food of popular opinion. But over and above all of these sources of food for our minds, are you feeding your mind with the truth of God's word? If not, can you really expect your mind to be transformed? Can you expect to lose 30 pounds and get into the best shape of your life If you don't put healthy food into your body and exercise regularly, of course not. It's impossible. It doesn't work that way. It's the same thing with our minds. They cannot be renewed. They cannot be transformed unless we are feeding them with the truth of God's word and guided by his Holy Spirit. And so what we put into our minds, what we meditate on, what we think about every day is directly affected by what we're putting into our minds. And so, when we do this and we feed our minds with the right things, we begin to see things God's way. Now, what happens when we begin to see the world and things around us the way God sees them? Well, one of the first things we'll see is we see that all nations rage and rebel against God, just in different ways. 
Psalm chapter 2, verse 2 says this, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, God's anointed, in this context, the original context was referring to any of the kings of Israel who were anointed, ordained by God. So in this context, it was King David. They were rising up against King David saying, we are going to get rid of him as being a ruler over us. We are going to rise up against God's anointed and we are going to break the chains and throw off the shackles. Essentially saying we are rebelling. We are going to make life work our way rather than God's way. The ultimate fulfillment, however, of this prophecy concerning God's anointed was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Now, the nations, in the plural sense, notice it doesn't just say one nation. It wasn't just talking about the Syrians or the the Philistines. It said nations, plural, in a broad sense. The nations are in uproar because they refuse to submit to God's anointed. They refuse to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. The nations have their own agenda, and it's not God's agenda. They stand against him. They rebel against Jesus Christ. They did this when the psalm was written, and they still do it today. I want you to make no mistake about this. It is not only Muslim nations who are guilty of rebellion against God's anointed. Western Europe which was once the most Christ-centered place on earth. The beautiful churches and cathedrals still bear witness to that fact today. But today in France, less than 2% of the population claims Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Less than 2%. France's great danger is not the spread of Islam. It is the fact that they have rejected Jesus Christ. See, my friends, ancient Israel went through the exact same thing. God said to them, if you follow me and my ways, I will bless your land. I will protect your borders. But it is when you turn against God, your protection is not in your armies. Your protection is not in your walls and your checkpoints. Your protection is in the Lord Almighty. It is when you reject God that your safety is now compromised because God is a nation's protector. Not its army, not its police force, not its government. God is the protector. And France today has chosen to reject God as their protector. They have done it wholesale, generation after generation. Jesus Christ is not their authority. The greatest threat to France is not the spread of Islam. It is the fact that they have rejected the sovereign Lord, who is any nation, including Canada's, protector. Canada is on the same track as France. We have only to look at the materialism, the worldliness, and the selfishness of our own nation. The fact that we are so secularized as a people that the the notion of God is almost a laughingstock in the public space. You don't bring up God in government anymore. You hardly bring him up in casual conversation. God has been relegated to the back circles. He's been relegated to the the place of guys like me, the preacher who's up there talking about him, but no one else really cares about God in our land anymore. There are very few who take him seriously. The same thing is happening in our own land. 
A generation ago, a man named Francis Schaeffer said that of the West, our agenda is personal peace and affluence. And I believe it's more true than ever. But what's worse is that the church today is also buying into that same agenda. Jesus gave us only one agenda, one commission. It was to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples of all nations. You see, the only cure for the rage of the nations is the discipleship in Jesus Christ. The only thing that will cure any nation, whether secular, atheist, or Muslim, is to see Jesus Christ elevated, lifted up as Lord over all. This is the cure for the nations. This is the church's assignment. And it's been our assignment from the beginning, and it hasn't changed. But increasingly, the church's agenda across Canada is more closely resembling the world's than it is Christ's. But through God's eyes, when our minds have been transformed, through his eyes, we see that all nations rebel, including our own. So therefore, all nations must repent and turn back to God. Which leads us to the second thing we see. Through God's eyes, we see that all people of all nations, of all tribes, all people equally need Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The familiar passage says, For all have sinned. Everyone. I've sinned. I've sinned more times than I would care to admit. All have sinned. We're all sinners. In God's view, we're all in the same boat. He doesn't see a Muslim or an atheist any differently because he sees them both as people equally in need of his salvation through Jesus Christ. He sees people of all types and stripes, whether agnostic, hostile to faith, kind of interested in faith. He sees them in his infinite wisdom and in his love. He sees them the same as people who he came from heaven to earth to die for, to redeem, to bring into a relationship with him. That is how God sees all people, that they all need Jesus Christ. And so for us, do we see people that way? Do we see all people as equally deserving of God's salvation? All people as equally loved by God? Do we see their desperate need for the Savior? This past Monday, I had the opportunity to attend a New Tribes Missions Pastors Forum in Brandon. You'll recall that we had the New Tribes Mission speaker Ed Esau in our church this past Sunday, and this was the next day, a conference with some of the other directors of New Tribes Mission. There was some great information we were presented with, some very challenging information. And one thing that I learned there in that pastor's forum just absolutely floored me. It just just didn't seem right. It stunned me. And I I had to clarify what they meant by this, but it meant exactly what they said. And here's what they said that just stunned me. They said that the total number, the total number of full-time missionaries sent out from Canadian churches, and this includes those who remain in the country working in places like Bible camps, so like Howard and Kathy Weir, for example. This would include people like that. The total number of full-time missionaries sent out from Canadian churches is 5,500. Now, I don't know what that number does to you, but it floored me. It just seemed low. 5,500 full-time missionaries sent out from Canadian churches. Just to put that into context for you, out of a nation of 30 million people, 
Only 5,500 people are full-time missionaries, meaning a minuscule 0.0001833% of the population is actively engaged in the go of spreading the gospel. 0.0001833% of our population. Jesus' words are as true as ever, my friends. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers, are few. We need to see that Canada, our nation, is in rebellion against Jesus Christ and his authority. And but before we will reach the people around us with the love of Jesus Christ, we as a church, we ourselves, must repent of our own selfish agendas, our own rebellion of apathy, of complacency and pride. We must repent and then embrace wholeheartedly God's agenda for the world. His agenda, spelled out clearly in his word, is this. He is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My friends, God is still looking for workers. God is still looking for workers. Some of you here today, some of you here today may have other plans for your life. You might have your own agenda, your own goals of where you think your life is going. Some of you here today may be looking forward to retirement or currently enjoying retirement. But God is still looking for workers. We have many excuses, but God is still looking for workers to bring in his harvest that he gave his life for. Let me be clear. Every single follower of Jesus Christ, whether in a full-time missionary capacity or as a full-time missionary to your neighbors, to your co-workers, wherever God has placed you, every single follower has a part to play in this, an important part, a part that only you can play because only God has placed you uniquely where you are. No one else is in your shoes, only you are. You have a part to play. But perhaps there's someone here today who this message is specifically for. Perhaps there's someone here today who God is wanting to call into full-time missions. In the mid-19th century, in the nation of Scotland, a 19-year-old named George Stott had a serious knee injury. He ended up with the limited medicine and the capacities of that day having to have his leg amputated from the knee down. After giving his life to the Lord at a revival meeting, he got involved in his church. Some years went by, and in early 1865, Stott, the man with only one leg, learned that the great missionary, James Hudson Taylor, was looking to recruit pioneer missionaries for his non-denominational China Inland Mission. Taylor took one look at him when he walked through the door, saying, I would like to become a missionary to China. Taylor took one look at him and said, with only one leg, why do you think of going as a missionary? What could you hope to accomplish that men with two legs couldn't do any better? To which Stott replied, I do not see those with two legs going, so I must. 
he was accepted. The oldest church in Wenzhou, China, still stands today as testimony to how God used George Stott's life. As a result of the ongoing influence of the message of Christ, first brought there by George Stott, Wenzhou is known today as the Jerusalem of China because the entire Wenzhou municipality of 6 million inhabitants has more than 600,000 evangelical Christ followers, or 10% of the population, who live there today. Because one man with one leg went where men with two legs would not go. And God used his willingness and his life in an amazing way. Maybe God is calling someone here to be the 5,501st full-time missionary sent out from Canada. Make no mistake about it. God doesn't need big numbers to make a big impact. He doesn't even need a person with two legs. All he needs is a fully committed life. Is it yours? Are you willing? Though the nations rage, who will go to them? Though the people hate, who will show them the love of Christ? Though people will kill others in his name, who is willing to go and to, if necessary, die in his name? Who among us is willing and ready to take up our cross as we follow Jesus Christ? Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 says this, Ask of me, says the Lord, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The good news is that though the rebellious will have their day in the sun, God will allow that. He will allow the momentary rage of the nations against him. But he promises and assures that in the end it will all be in vain. Because in spite of it all, God's word is still spreading through the world today. Christ's church is still working and God is still fully and firmly in control. We might look at a world today, we might see the events and worry and be alarmed. But is God worried? Is God alarmed at what is happening today? I want you to look at verse 4. When everyone has aligned themselves against his anointed, all of the nations are gathered together in opposition and rebellion against him. What is God's response? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. What a picture. We don't see God in heaven looking down at what's happening, pacing back and forth. We don't see him stressed, wondering how are things going to turn out in Syria, in Paris, in Mali. Is he stressed and anxious that ISIS is somehow going to prevail against his will? No, not one bit. God is sitting and he is laughing at their attempts. God is on the throne. This is not the first war that God has seen. It's not the first time that nations have rebelled against him. It's not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that his followers have had to die for his name's sake. But to them, he always gives the strength and the added blessing of knowing the intimacy of being persecuted with Christ. He looks at these nations that are rebelling against him and he asks the question, you have plans to stop my purpose? You take your stand against me and you think you have a chance? He laughs. This is humorous to him. Not humorous in the wickedness they're doing, but humorous in the folly of their thinking that they actually believe they could win. 
He sits there on his throne, at rest, out of reach of all of the impotent agendas of the nations. He sits as judge over the world, perfectly aware that all of his own purposes and plans, in spite of all opposition, will be accomplished. Nothing and no one will stop the will and the plans of God. Psalm 29 verse 10 says this, He sits as king forever. He sits. Notice he's not standing. He sits. All of earth is in rebellion. God remains seated. He has set in process a plan that cannot fail. He's not jumping up an alarm. He's not pacing back and forth. Everything is under his control. Think back over history for just a moment with me. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, a pagan nation, a pagan king that God used, then humbled, and who ultimately repented before God. The pagan Roman Empire, which dominated the entire known world through the means of violence. Their soldiers were the ones who crucified Christ, and its emperors ruthlessly persecuted all of Jesus' followers. But Rome, who terrorized their enemies with the cross, was ultimately conquered by the cross of Jesus Christ. The Vikings, they pillaged and terrorized Europe for centuries. But why did they stop? Were they defeated militarily? Did someone defeat their armies once and for all? No. The Vikings stopped because they were reached by Christian missionaries who gave them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who transformed them from a people of violence to a people of peace. Remember, God sets up kings and then brings them down again. Even the wicked ruler can be used as an instrument of his purpose. He used Babylon, Assyria, and Rome. Do you believe that the jihadist Muslim is too much for him? That this is somehow a new breed of people that he has no say or sway over? No way. He is still in control. And this is why he can laugh at the maneuvering of kings and presidents and prime ministers and dictators and nations. You see, while storms rage on earth, there is wonderful calm in heaven. The storms and chaos of earth do not trouble heaven's throne. Through God's eyes, we see victory, not defeat. When we go back to Matthew chapter 26, Jesus had just finished telling his disciples that they will be persecuted and put to death because of him. Not exactly uplifting news. But then he says in verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You see, what appears to us as defeat through God's eyes is actually victory. As Paul wrote, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? History records for us one such powerful example of a time when Roman gladiators were fighting to the death in the Colosseum. Suddenly, in one of these pitched battles with all of the crowds looking on, cheering, lusting for blood, suddenly there was an interruption. A humble man, clad in only a a rough robe, boldly leaped down over the walls and into the sands of the arena. The man's name was Telemachus. 
He was one of the Christ followers who devoted himself to a holy life of prayer and self-denial. He kept himself apart from the wicked life of Rome. Although few of the Roman citizens followed these men's examples, they had great respect for these hermits. And the few who recognized Telemachus knew he had come from the wilds of Asia on a pilgrimage to visit churches and celebrate Christmas in Rome that year. Without hesitating an instant, Telemachus advanced upon the two gladiators in pitched battle. They were in this life-and-death struggle, the clash of steel against steel. Coming up behind these men, he laid a hand on one of them. Pulling the man towards him, he sternly rebuked them for shedding innocent blood. And then turning towards the thousand of angry faces around him, he called out to them, Do not repay God's mercy in turning away the swords of our enemies by murdering each other. Angry shouts drowned out his voice. This is no place for preaching. On with the combat. Pushing Telemachus aside, the two gladiators prepared to continue their mortal combat. But Telemachus stepped between them. Enraged at the interference, the gladiators turned on Telemachus and stabbed him to death. The crowd fell silent, shocked by the death of this holy man. But his death had not come in vain. For from that day until this day, no gladiator has ever again entered into combat in the Roman Colosseum. And did you know that today, if you visit the Colosseum in Rome, a cross of Christ stands in victory above the sands that were last stained by the blood of Telemachus. For the disciple of Jesus Christ, death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Death holds no fear for the disciple of Jesus Christ, for it is the doorway to heaven. And in the face of persecution, Jesus declares... The gospel will be preached in the whole world. Nothing and no one will stand against it. His will, his power will prevail. This is the lens through which we too must look at the events taking place in the world around us. There is a rebellious world, yes. But God is sovereign. He is working out his plan. One that will ultimately result in Jesus taking possession over men and women, boys and girls, changing their lives. And one day there will be a rule and a reign of Christ. A day where everything comes together in such a beautiful way. We will just stand for a thousand years amazed at the beauty of what God has prepared for all those who love him. What a day that will be. And in that day, the only lens will be God's lens. The only view will be his view. The only kingdom will be his kingdom. And so, my friends, see to it that you are not alarmed. For if you can trust that the God who rules over the nations is in control, then trust that he is also in control of your life. He sees you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he will never let you go. Let's pray. Father God, you are in control. I'll say it again, Father. You are in control. Help us to believe that today. 
Lord, where our faith is weak, O Lord, help our lack of faith. O Father, where our conviction has been sorely lacking, increase our conviction, increase our passion. Lord, we repent of where we have been lukewarm, where we have bought into the agenda of the world rather than your eternal agenda. And so, Father, as a church, as a people, we say, we are sorry. We repent. Give us hearts that will be completely, solely committed to your agenda to see all people of all nations touched by the love of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we come to you today, we are humbled by your great love. And so, Father, if there's anyone here today who needs to take just that first simple step of trusting you for the first time, trusting you with their eternal soul, I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would just gently touch their lives right now and show them that, oh Lord, you are so gentle, you are so loving, and you are so ready to embrace them into your care. And so, Father, we pray that you would do your work, even in this moment. And Lord, for all of us here today who have already taken that step, we pray, Lord, that if you are calling someone, even just one here today, into full-time missions, I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would touch that life. Speak words of assurance and of encouragement that they would be ready to say, Yes, Lord, wherever you send me, I will go. Whatever you call me to say, I will say. And, oh, Lord, would you give them the blessing of knowing what it's like to be fully yielded to you. And so, Father, we pray that you would establish your work in this church, establish your work in this community, establish your work in this land and in this world, that though the nations rage, you will prevail. You are in control. Bless us to leave today with that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.